Okay. So last night, uh, Greg gave us an overview of the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of practice that the Buddha laid out as a means to find real happiness, real ease, and real freedom. And tonight, I'd like to zoom into just one of those eight path factors, the factor of right or wise effort. But even before I go into that in a bit more detail, I'd like to highlight a very specific aspect of effort, and that's the effort that it takes to listen to Dharma talks. (laughs) Because listening with full awareness is a practice, and yet it's almost never spoken about in that way. In my time on staff at IMS, I listened to literally hundreds of morning instructions and evening Dharma talks, and I almost never heard anybody talk about the practice of mindful listening. It seems to be just taken for granted that we sit there and sounds come in and something happens. But especially these days uh, when we have, where everything is so instant, I think we're not used to paying attention in a more sustained way. So we do need to apply effort to keep being present, to receive what's being offered, and to stay with this practice of listening more consistently. And I've noticed too that um, in relation to listening, as more and more information is available, more and more podcasts and YouTube clips and All kinds of information is available, and to some extent that information is competing for our attention. So a lot of the messages that we're listening to these days, they're becoming more and more hyped and glammed up and sensationalized, and they become just products that are we're consuming for our entertainment. So if we consciously or unconsciously come to a Dharma talk with that expectation of being entertained, we're likely to be disappointed. Sorry, people, but we just can't compete with all the TED talks and everything else that's out there. And in some countries that I teach, uh, the Dharma talk is almost treated like a movie or something. And people bring these little kind of camping seats or they make big nests for themselves out of cushions and blankets and they snuggle into these as if they're about to watch some binge-watching TV series and about the only thing that's missing is a massive bucket of popcorn. So, you know, it's very easy for us to bring these unconscious um, habits in the way that we listen to instructions and talks. And because I think, you know, many of us have been trained, and I speak for myself, to listen for information in a fairly intellectual or academic way. So, you know, being at high school, in classes, perhaps being at university, listening to lectures, we sit there and we take in all this information, or we take in some information, and for me at least, it was quite a long time before I realized that I was listening with that kind of um, attitude, that the teachers, I realized that the Dharma teachers were not just spouting a bunch of more or less interesting facts for my entertainment, and that the Dharma talk was not some kind of going to bed kind of nighttime story, 
It's actually giving us information to engage with, to do something about, to explore in our own lives. So we're trying to offer information that's something to really be to be taken in. And we can also bring, especially this is a, a trap for, as I said, I just have listened to hundreds and hundreds of Dharma talks and probably many of you here are well-seasoned Dharma talk listeners. So another way we can get caught in listening is, you know, we hear, oh yeah, Noble Eightfold Path, tick, 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 five hindrances, yep, seven factors of lightning, yep, matter and compassion, heard it all before. And it's very hard to bring that fresh, uh, new attention. Perhaps that's why in the Zen tradition, for example, they put so much emphasis on what's known as beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, few. So... In line with this, that I was remembering this evening how the very first Dharma talk that I ever heard was actually by a Zen monk in us who was visiting Australia. And this talk was at least 20 years ago, but I still remember the opening line of his talk all this time later. Back then, as I said, it was my first talk, so I'd never been to anything like that before, and I was a little bit nervous, and I was excited I was sort of waiting to hear some kind of profound revelation that would change the course of my life. But this Zen master was Japanese and his English was a little bit hard to understand. And he opened the talk by saying, Good evening, everyone. I hope tonight that you'll all be deeply disappointed. And when I heard that word disappointed, my mind went into a tailspin and I was thinking, oh no, poor guy, what could he have meant? Anyway, he got some way into the talk and I realized that disappointed was exactly what he meant. Now, I'm not a Zen practitioner and that was the first Dharma talk I'd ever heard, so it's possible that I completely misunderstood what he was pointing to. But my sense of what he was saying, uh, it could be interpreted in a few different ways. And I think one was that he was inviting us to look at any assumptions we might have had that he was going to give us all the answers, that he was somehow going to enlighten us. In effect, he was saying, if you expect anything at all from me in terms of enlightening you, right there is delusion because all of us have to do the work for ourselves. Even the Buddha himself, he didn't have the power to transform someone's life for them. We each have to take in the teachings that are being offered and explore them in the uh, context of our own lives. And no one else can really tell us how to do that because our circumstances are unique. So we have to be willing to engage with these teachings in as much more on much more than just an intellectual level if they're going to have any effect and a second way that i interpreted the zen master's statement 
was as an invitation to see through all of our preconceptions, our delusions, our assumptions about every aspect of this path. Because when we see through some of those uh, wrong views, there can be a sense of disappointment. But it's a healthy disappointment because it's cutting through ignorance and helping us to see more clearly. So coming back to this invitation to listen with awareness, a very significant dimension of this is to try to listen without prejudice. And I know prejudice is a loaded word, but in this context I mean trying to listen without our usual pre-judgments, which is what prejudice literally means. Listening through without our habitual assumptions and expectations and concepts and views and opinions that get in the way of hearing what's actually being said. And this too takes a surprising amount of effort to keep coming back to beginner's mind and to try to hear what's being said as if for the very first time. And then when we hear it, being willing to let it challenge our assumptions about the world to see if they really are as true as we think they are and if not, to let them go. So it takes effort to listen to the Dharma talk and it takes effort in the practice generally to keep showing up and to keep meeting whatever we experience with as much balance as possible. And throughout the retreat so far, Greg and I have been pointing to this need for balance in our practice. I've mentioned a few times now that the Buddha framed his teachings in terms of the middle way, which means not falling into self-indulgence on one hand or self-punishment in the form of excessive striving on the other and learning how to stay balanced through changing circumstances is one way of framing the overall goal of this whole practice. So tonight I'd look, like to talk more about ways that we often do get out of balance in relation to this factor of right effort or energy or virya, to use the Pali word. So virya is most commonly translated as effort or energy, sometimes also translated as heroic effort or tireless energy or strength, courage, vigor, perseverance and persistence. And this word virya actually has the same root as the English words virile and warrior, so V-I-R. Some of you might know the yoga pose Virabhadrasana, the hero's pose or the warrior pose. And this quality of virya appears over and over throughout the Buddhist teachings. So many of you know he taught a lot in the form of numbered lists to help with the oral transmission of the teachings. And so virya appears as one of the seven factors of awakening that I mentioned this morning. It appears as one of the ten parami, those qualities that can be polished and perfected in daily life. And it appears here in this Noble Eightfold Path sequence as right effort. But before I go too much further, I'd like to just take a moment to pause 
and to see if you can notice if there have been any particular responses in your own bodies and hearts and minds when you hear phrases such as tireless energy, heroic effort, or perseverance. I think it's helpful to notice if there are any responses because for some people a very common response to hearing about effort or energy might be some form of, oh no, here we go. They're going to start talking about how in Burma they only got four hours of sleep a night and I'm going, I'm not doing well enough and I should be trying harder and I feel exhausted even thinking about it. In fact, maybe I'll go for a nap as soon as this talk's over. And for other people, the response might be more like, finally we get to the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. Heroic effort is what it's really about. Only two and a half days to go now, so I'm going to really crank it up. See if I can do with only three hours of sleep tonight. And for other people, there might not be that much response at all. It might be just... um some evenness of mind. So if that's true for you, you can just abide in equanimity for the rest of the talk. But whatever your response might have been, I invite you just to sort of bookmark it um, because it might be useful information for later in the talk. So I wanted to talk about effort because often it's kind of just out of sight. And if we don't bring awareness to it, we can find ourselves driven in ways that aren't necessarily skillful. So first of all, wanted to talk about, well, why is effort so important in the Buddha's teachings? And on one level, it's obvious. You know, all of us have a limited supply of effort and we need to make sure our effort is channeled in the appropriate way. So, unfortunately, what I have found in my own practice and also working with many students is because we operate in a a culture or there's a dominant culture that is oriented towards competitiveness and perfectionism and striving and busyness and idealism, often when we hear this phrase, right effort, it can easily immediately bring up a sense of self-judgment or of being not good enough. At least that was true for me early in my own practice. When I would hear this phrase, right effort, I would immediately think blood, sweat and tears. And I didn't realize that I was totally focused on the effort part and not paying attention to what the right part was pointing to. And I've seen this unbalanced approach in a lot of students too, We seem to be very binary people and we kind of um, often approach things with a very black and white attitude, all or nothing, boom or bust, Um, black and white, good and bad, right and wrong, on and on. So this also can be true when we um, try to apply effort to our practice. We often start with a phase of intense striving and then we burn out We collapse into exhausted apathy. We take a few, some period to recover and then we push ourselves far too hard again and then go through the same cycle over and over again from apathy to striving, apathy to striving and so on. 
And as some of you know, I've started to think of this as what I call the superhero to slug syndrome. Because often the superhero phase is driven by fear that unless I'm putting in 110% effort, I'm going to revert to being that loathsome slug that I used to be before I started meditating. Which ironically is often uh, what happens, that we do exhaust ourselves and become a slug again, at least temporarily. So learning to recognize when we might be forcing the practice too hard is one of the skills of this practice. For example, when you hear the bell at the end of a sitting, if there's a sense of, oh, finally, and just letting go of a real wave of relief, it's possible that may be a sign of having tr- being trying too hard. Because, in fact, there's no difference in the moment before the bell rings and the moment after the bell rings. They're both equal opportunities to bring mindfulness to. So the other day I brought in Saido Utejaniya's met- metaphor of the two hands touching and just that very light awareness. When the mindful awareness is that light, it's infinitely sustainable through the, all of our waking hours, and it really doesn't take as much effort as we often think. But I know for myself, especially in the beginning of my practice, I was like, mindful, 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 and there was so much force that it was exhausting. So that's one end of the spectrum, is making too much effort. On the other hand, if the bell rings at the end of the sitting and we realize we've been asleep for the last 42 and a half minutes, that might be a sign of perhaps the other side of the coin. And it's true that um, in meditation we sometimes experience what's called sinking mind, sloth and torpor, And I think of this, uh, I really like the koala, the animal that you see in Australia, because for me it's such a perfect demonstration of that feeling I sometimes get when I'm sitting and it's very comfortable. And you start to feel like that koala who's just kind of holding onto a tree and there's like just enough effort to not actually fall out of the tree, but not a lot else is going on. So koala mind might be one very um, common pattern to be aware of too. And in all of this, the invitation is to get to know what are our own default patterns. Most of us have a bias either towards too much effort or perhaps not enough effort. And it's not easy to find this middle way. I think we can take some comfort or consolation from the fact that even the Buddha himself, before he became fully enlightened, took a long time to find that right balance. So I think uh, just to give an overview of the story of his life, because I find it so uh, such a powerful illustration of how easy it is to go from one extreme to another. So before the Buddha became the Buddha, Buddha being a title that means awakened, his name was Siddhartha Gautama, and it's said that he was born into a fairly aristocratic family. He was some kind of prince, and so he was able to live a life of total ease, total luxury, 
indulging in every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. However, at the age of about 27 or 28, he'd done everything he possibly could in terms of hedonistic enjoyment, and he started to feel that this wasn't actually a very meaningful way to live his life. And he seems to have gone through a kind of existential crisis. He ended up renouncing this life of luxury. He left the palace, and he became a hardcore ascetic. So he went right to the other extreme, and he spent seven years practicing the most intense and rigorous spiritual practices that were available in India at that time. And back then, most of these seemed to have involved various of ways of torturing the body uh, with the intention of getting rid of sense desire. So they included things like holding the breath until the almost loss of consciousness or sleeping on beds of nails or not sleeping at all and severely reducing how much food we took in until it was just a few grains of rice. And the Buddha-to-be was a, a good student, so it's said that he practiced these all the way until the point of death. He was almost on the verge of death when he had a breakthrough. And that breakthrough came in the form of a memory, memory of himself as a young boy of about six or seven and what he remembered was having been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree when his body was relaxed, his mind relaxed, and he slipped into a state of very deep absorption known as a jhana, which was mentally very blissful. And it's said that this memory of mental bliss was what made him question whether the asceticism was actually the right path. And he realized he had been afraid of this wholesome pleasure. And when he let go of that fear, not long thereafter, it said that he attained full awakening, nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So after this awakening event, the very first discourse that he gave was his teaching on the middle way the need to find balance between the extremes of self-indulgence on one hand and self-torture on the other. And most of us, I think, have some familiarity with uh, self-indulgence and making too little effort. But when we hear about the kind of extreme physical self-torture that the Buddha went through, that might seem more bizarre to us because it's not generally a part of our culture. But one of our teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has pointed out that we, not, we might these days not be into physical self-torture, but what we do have often is psychological self-torture. So that, as I mentioned earlier, this tendency towards judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves is extremely pre prevalent. And this, too, is something that we need to learn to release if the practice is really going to deepen. So in the Buddha's own teachings, there's a well-known metaphor for this need for balance. And it's said that there was a, a monk who was struggling with his practice. He was getting very wound up, and he had been a lute player in his life before he became a monk. And so he went to the Buddha to ask for advice. 
And the Buddha said to him, well, when you were a lute player, if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings too tight? And of course the answer is no. And then he asked a second question, well, did you tune the strings too loose? And again, fairly obviously, no. If you want a good sound, you need to find the right pitch, the right balance between too tight and too loose. And what I appreciate about that metaphor is that it requires listening. We have to learn how to listen to ourselves, to be aware of our context, to know in any moment what's the right amount of effort. And just like with a musical instrument, we don't just tune it once and then that's it for the rest of our lives. Circumstances are constantly changing. So what is right effort right here in this sitting now may be very different from right effort in the first sitting in the morning. Might be different on day one compared to day five. Maybe different when we're sick or injured. So we have to constantly be tuning into our own bodies and hearts and minds to know in this moment what's the appropriate amount of effort. So some of what I'm talking about tonight is going to apply only to the too tight people and some is going to apply only to the too loose people. And so there's a challenge there because I know, as I mentioned at the beginning, we tend to listen to Dharma talks through the filters of our own conditioning. And so I was wondering, well, how can I get the too tight people to only hear the correct instructions and not get the too loose people to only hear the invitation to back off and take it easy? Because I know that probably the too tight people are going to go, yes, I need to try much harder. And the too loose people are going to go, yes, I'm going to go and read books next door again. So... Knowing your own tendency, I really encourage you to see if you can not do that and take in the instructions that are appropriate for your um, particular tendency, default tendency. So I'll begin first by talking about making too much effort or striving. And this can show up as a very goal-oriented attitude to our practice where we're constantly looking for results and getting impatient when they don't show up fast enough. We get caught in expectations about how our practice is supposed to unfold, how it's supposed to look, what's supposed to be happening. And often what's actually <coughs> happening, what's actually happening looks quite different from our expectations. And then the flip side of expectations comes up and we experience disappointment and self-judgment and doubt. A lot of energy gets consumed by anxiety, wondering if we're doing it right and comparing ourselves to other people. So striving often results in feelings of inadequacy and self-hatred, and that can turn the whole of our meditation practice into a giant self-improvement project. But often those same unseen beliefs that are driving our striving in the first place tend to kick into yet another cycle of feeling unworthy and then trying too hard and then judging ourselves and so on and so on. So how do we get out of this vicious cycle? First, we really need to be aware of what's happening and to bring mindfulness to it, 
to know what's happening in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And that's particularly why I introduce those three questions. The last one, how am I relating to my experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind? That can help to reveal any sense of pushing or wanting or resisting what's actually happening. So sometimes when we... uh, encounter this level of striving, it can be helpful to try and drop down and see if there is some sense of strong identification with the practice of having to make something happen. We might start to touch into a deep-rooted fear of some kind, the kind of slug fear that I talked about earlier. And if you do notice that fear, then Bringing in some self-compassion can be very helpful. It's important to not, not to take this personally. It's not our individual shortcoming or our unique neuroses that we have this fear, this striving pattern. It's really coming from a much broader conditioning from our society as a whole. So turning towards self-compassion, but again with the caveat of not to make that another massive self-improvement project. Oh, I should be more self-compassionate. But just to see, can I balance it out? So that's the tendency of the imbalance of making too much effort. But there are also times when the pendulum swings the other way and we find ourselves sliding more into complacency or apathy. And for some of us, lack of effort is more our default pattern. Sometimes this apathy happens as a kind of a backlash from having made too much effort. We can hear about the need for effort and discipline and something in us consciously or unconsciously rebels. And then we retreat back into our comfort zones. And on one level, it's natural. Of course, we want to be comfortable And given the choice, most of us would quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever, if we could. So the Tibetan teacher, Chogyam Trungpa, he complained about his students. He said he was constantly telling them to wake up, but they they were like marsupials, always trying to wriggle back down into the pouch. And I think most of us can relate to this image, because there is something in all of us that would like to just get back in our pouches and stay there. But even if that were possible, even if it were possible to stay in our comfort zones, the problem is that over time they keep getting smaller. And even on retreat, it's quite it's fascinating to me, even on retreat where our options are quite limited, how quickly we develop strategies for staying comfortable So we have our favorite seat in the dining room or our favorite place to do walking or our favorite clothes that we like to wear. We set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to have a snack. And if our routine gets thrown off in some ways, it's amazing how reactive we can be, at least speaking for myself. So we all have our own strategies for maximizing comfort and avoiding discomfort. And as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, we can unconsciously 
start to use it as just another strategy to make ourselves feel better. And this particularly mindfulness these days is sometimes promoted almost as a kind of a magic, a magic wand that you just wave over everything and then you'll live happily ever after. And in some settings, meditation is presented as yet another strategy for making ourselves more comfortable. And we can hear a lot of talk about the need for self-care and then start to uh, rationalize it as a form of uh, actually more like self-indulgence. And the problem with self-indulgence is that it's a, a slippery slope. And I've really noticed this in my own practice at times, particularly during longer retreats. You know, some way into a three-month or something, I start thinking, well, I've made a good effort, you know. Perhaps I need to just ease up a bit. And it's possible that at times that might have been true, but what I found happens is I do sitting, I do walking, I do sitting, and I think, well, maybe I'll just take a little nap. And then it becomes sit one, nap one, sit half of one, nap two, and so on. And I find myself doing more and more, quotation, lying down meditation, which is actually a fancy word for saying sleeping and it's true that the Buddha taught four postures, and one of them is lying down. But if lying meditation turns into napping, and napping turns into long periods of sleep, we've somehow lost the purpose of what we're doing here. So, on one level we can tell ourselves, well, yes, I have been working hard. I do need to take care of myself. It's the kind thing to do to just take some time out. And we have that lovely tempting room next door with the wood fire and the carpet and the stack of books. And it's not so bad. But if you remember back to the aspirations that we all put together on Saturday, they can be a very powerful um motivator to remind us, well, what are we doing here? We can sleep and nap and read anywhere, but coming to a retreat like this is actually a very precious opportunity. And I know it can be easy to take it for granted and think, well, you know, I'll do better next time. I'll come to this one next year. or Maybe in X period of time, then I'll start taking things more seriously. But we don't know. We don't know if this is even going to be another opportunity to be on retreat after this. So the freedom that uh, we've been pointing to is not the kind of freedom or ease that comes from making ourselves comfortable because that's dependent on having to constantly manipulate external circumstances in order to be happy. What we're training in doing here is developing our inner capacity to let go and to let be so that we're not as dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. And if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, then when we do run into life's inevitable challenges, we won't have the inner resources to meet them. And while it's true that here and now in this setting we probably might be able to get an extra pillow or take a hot shower or have a cup of tea or eat a piece of cake or take a painkiller or lie down and read a book or whatever it is we want to do to alleviate discomfort. 
But at some point, all of us will be in a position where those strategies are either not available or don't work anymore. And for sure, we're all going to have to face into our own aging and illness and death if we aren't already. So to use an analogy, it's a bit like lifting weights. And pretty obviously, I'm not a weightlifter. But if we wait until we suddenly have to try lift, lifting 50 or 100 kilos, we're going to be in trouble. But if we can start expanding our comfort zones now by gently working with, say, 5 or 10 kilo weights, then over time, those comfort zones start to expand to become bigger and we're able to manage a much bigger range of the challenges that life throws at us. So this is one reason why we really emphasize practicing sense restraint and really renouncing our usual um, strategies for staying in our comfort zones by not indulging in sense pleasures. We can also bring awareness to our mental comfort zones and all of the ways we tend to cling and create safety by having fixed views and opinions and perceptions and judgments and beliefs and identification with our mental constructs. This is another very powerful way that we can use our intellect to help us um, create a, a kind of a false sense of safety. Because underneath all that, if we really look deeply, we might register that there's some kind of fear. And it's true that if we, when sometimes when we hear this invitation to practice renunciation on different levels, and this invitation to stretch out of our comfort zones a little, we might notice some kind of reactivity, some kind of anxiety. So sometimes right effort involves the willingness to more, step more into the heroic, heroic kind of effort to maybe feel the fear and do it anyway, as the old cliche goes. Because I think, as you all already have experienced for yourselves, there are phases of our practice that it can be quite challenging. And at times like those, we might want to quite consciously see if we can connect with a heroic kind of effort, virya expressed as courage. Sometimes, though, it can feel like perhaps we don't have the necessary virya and fear and doubt become quite stronger and we lose contact with our inner resources. And at times like those, I found it helpful to look outside of myself, to look for inspiring role models. So for some people, the, the Buddha um, can be an inspiring figure, whereas for other people, that might seem a little remote. If you don't relate necessarily to the Buddha himself, then perhaps you have a teacher, a meditation teacher or um, a benefactor or a spiritual friend who you feel has perhaps walked this path a little further and come out the, come out the other side of those similar challenges in good shape. So when those doubts come in, we can look externally to other people and uh, spiritual friendship can be very powerful support at these times. At other times, we might like to reflect on the development of our own practice over time, whether that's months or years or decades, 
if we look back, we can see that there have been ups and downs and that there have been challenges that we've, that we've faced and come through. And when we look back that way, we might start to recognize that those times of greatest challenge were also the times of greatest growth, of greatest development. So one way this is sometimes talked about in terms of meditation practice, these are referred to as cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that there can be natural rhythms that the practice goes through. And the purification phase here refers to those times when we have to deal with challenges of various kinds, mental, the afflictive energies, the hindrances and so on. Sometimes we get caught in some very powerfully painful uh, emotional or psychological states. And then at some point we develop the resources to meet them and the um, purification phase gives way to what's known as the purity stage where there's a new sense of ease and understanding, perhaps clarity and calm, openness, perhaps even some moments of bliss. And when we first encounter this phase in a retreat, the tendency is to think, right, finally, now I'm getting it. Now I'm getting somewhere. This is great. I can cruise now for the rest of this retreat. Hmm, yes, I think you know how that turns out. Because often, sometimes the very next sitting, things change. In fact, one teacher said something like, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a good sitting. <laughs> Sounds like you know what they were talking about. Because these cycles of purity and purification happen, we touch into the bliss and that in some way allows the next level of detritus to kind of come percolating up. And then we find ourselves back in a purification cycle, working with more challenging and afflictive states again. And then at some point, we learn how to let those release and then another phase of purity. And in the beginning, we can feel like we're swinging wildly on a wild pe pendulum ride. But over time, these pendulum swings become less intense and we're able to make more space for this natural rhythm of the practice unfolding. I wanted to mention these uh, what these purity phases because sometimes on retreats we hear so much about the hindrances and the afflictive states that it's easy to reinforce our mind's negativity bias that pays a lot more attention to things that are difficult and challenging and painful and tends to overlook or ignore states that aren't so threatening. So part of the skill of the practice is learning at this stage to recognize some of those more subtle states, skillful states such as equanimity or calm, confidence or faith, energy and wisdom, the Brahma-Vihara qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. And over time we start to recognize how these states feel in the body and the heart and the mind and just this act of recognizing them helps them to get stronger. 
and they start to build confidence in the practice and our capacity to do it. So at this phase of the practice, we need to really refine our virya, our energy or effort, so as not to overshoot the mark. Because for many people, one of the most challenging aspects of meditation practice is the paradox that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be, not from doing. Because our cultural conditioning, though, is to always be doing, 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 it's easy to miss the more refined states of calm and quiet and tranquility. And so when we come into those more tranquil phases, there can be a tendency to want to push the river, to feel like, well, nothing's happening. What's going on? Something should be going on here. So this is uh, where we need to learn to work with a more refined level of effort and energy. We might start to notice when we're with those more wholesome states that because they're so pleasant, there can be fairly subtle levels of grasping or wanting or holding on. And then on the other side, traces of disappointment and aversion when inevitably they disappear at some point. So here at this stage, it's even more important to remember that nothing we're experiencing is personal. It's not that we've done something wrong when these states disappear. We're just experiencing the truth of impermanence. So we need to be on the lookout for when the sense of I is getting involved and trying to micromanage the practice and control the outcomes. Because really all we can do is incline the heart and mind in the right direction and then let go of attachment to results. As one Zen teacher puts it, enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you accident-prone. So this can be immensely frustrating to the part of us that really wants to be in control. But eventually we start to acquire a taste for this more effortless effort. It's a fruit of the practice. And at these times we can experience what feels like a quite spontaneous and unexpected releasing of dukkha followed by some quite pure happiness. Sometimes, though, the relief that follows, at first um, it is a relief, but then it can feel new and unfamiliar, and it takes a little bit of getting used to. And sometimes we might notice even a kind of a backlash, a cynical or a doubting voice, or the intellect goes into overdrive to try and figure out what the insight was and what it means and how to get it back again. So at this phase of the practice, we need to learn not to believe these reactions and counter-reactions and to recognize what it's like to come more into contact of what's sometimes called our Buddha nature, our highest human capacity. And it's possible that when we hear this kind of language that it might seem remote or abstract. But coming back to virya and this invitation to challenge our own mental preconceptions about what's possible, see if we can let go of limiting self-views and perhaps step a long way outside of what we think might have been possible for ourselves. And in this regard, I find the Buddha's life really inspiring. 
what we know of it from the texts. I imagine what my own life would have been like if he had not chosen to go beyond what his family told him was possible, if he'd stayed in his comfort zones in the palace and chosen not to go beyond what society around him told him was possible, and then even what his first spiritual teachers told him what was possible. And even though he knew it would be difficult, he did make the choice to teach what he learned. And if he had taken the easy option, none of us would be sitting here together tonight. So we've all already started following in the Buddha's footsteps, started walking this noble eightfold path that leads to the deepest freedom. So in the spirit of Virier, I just like to encourage all of us to keep going. So thank you for your in- attention. Let's just sit in silence for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.